Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Good day, Matt. Um, hey, John. Carlin, Jerry, John. John. Frank, Paul, hey, John. Patrick. Hey, evening, everyone. Uh, see lots of familiar faces. Uh, welcome, everybody. So, yeah, welcome to the very first um, God and Beer event. Um, yeah, this event was supposed to be at the Notting Hill Hotel tonight, um, but as I'm sure most of you know, here in Melbourne, we're under under lockdown and that wasn't possible. So we decided to run the event online. And um, but the event, the idea of the event is uh, is basically the same. We are, you know, trying to create a forum to discuss faith, and um, you know, this event is um, thankfully supported by the Knights of the Southern Cross Dandenong Branch. We're a Catholic men's organisation. Uh, but we wanted to open the event up to everybody. It's fine. You don't need your camera on. That's somebody else. Andrew, if you could possibly just make sure everybody's on mute um, for the time being, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, we just wanted to create a forum where people could um, come together You're on mute now. John, unmute Thank yourself. You. Thank you. So yeah, we wanted to create a forum where people could um, could get some ideas and inspiration, um, drawing on the truth, beauty, and goodness of the Catholic faith. And um, hopefully in future events, there'll also be the element of uh, friendship and, and enjoying a hot meal together at the pub um, combined with that. But that's the idea behind it. Our speaker for tonight for our inaugural God and Beer event is Greg Sheridan, AO. Uh, he's an award-winning journalist. I think that's that's his day job, but these days Greg's doing so many other things. He uh, is frequently seen on television, on Sky News and on ABC's Q&A quite frequently. He's written several, he's developing quite a library of books that he's written now. And the two most recent books that he's written, God is Good for You, and just, this, just in the last couple of months, um, Greg's published his latest book, Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. Um, these two books are probably the reason that I've asked Greg to come along tonight and, and speak to us because um, he's, he's really shown himself to be one of Australia's foremost Catholic intellectuals. Um, he's discussing ideas that are at an amazing depth, far beyond what uh, you would normally get from our uh, public discourse. And he's also... Um, I think introducing Australians, Australian Christians and Australian Catholics to a lot of uh, important ideas and, and movements that are happening, which are, I think, really important for us to understand going forward. And, um, yeah, that's, that's why I've, I've thought Greg was a fantastic speaker to, to bring along tonight. So, Greg, to, to kick it off, would you like to tell us why you wrote this book? Um, Greg's on. Oh, hang on. There we go, Greg. Sorry. Can you guys hear me now? Yes. Ah, terrific. Thanks so much, John. Well, look, thanks, John. Thanks, everyone, for uh, coming along tonight. We had the weirdest technical glitch uh, before we began. Um, the uh, I got an urgent email saying, here is an updated Zoom link for tonight's event. And I clicked on it, and it's some completely other random event that... Uh, <laughs> that also happens to be Christian. And a guy was reciting a poem about Mary Magdalene. So that's that's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. I must say, 
I, I'm thrilled to be at an event sponsored by the Knights of the Southern Cross. My father was a member of the Holy Name Society, and he once tried to join the Knights of the Southern Cross, and he went to, um, I think the Knights had an office or something in those days. This is about a million years ago. And he went into the office and they said, yeah, what can we do for you? And he said, I'm looking for the darkest night. And uh, they just asked him to leave, basically. So uh, that was his failure to join the Knights of the Southern Cross. Um, so, John, uh, thanks so much for hosting this function tonight. Uh, what is the book and why did I write it? <clears throat> so this is my second Christian book. It's my eighth book. I'm the foreign editor of The Australian. That's my day job. I write mainly about fun, chuckle topics like the Chinese Communist Party, nuclear submarines, Donald Trump. Good, good fun, easy topics like that. But uh, this is my second overtly Christian book. And um, the impulse to write them came about from seeing how anti-Christian the culture had become. And in my uh, sixth book, so two books ago, I went to a whole lot of writers' festivals and I saw that there was not a single book in favour of Christianity or Judaism. And I thought that's very bizarre, given that our culture is based on Christianity and Judaism. Uh, so I thought I'd like to add my thimbleful uh, to the discourse. Um, looking back, I can now see what my purpose was. The, the whole modernist project of the last 200 or 300 years has been one of disenchantment. And it's rested on two central propositions. The first is that belief in God is irrational, that science has killed God, that God is dead. And that was what my first book really tried to answer. God is good for you, the rational case for God. And then someone said to me about that book, but where in your book, Greg, is the, the living Jesus whom we encounter in the Gospels? And I thought that was a fair challenge. So the second book, I think, tries to answer the second part of the modernist uh, project of the last two or 300 years, which is to say that the New Testament is all lies. You can't rely on it. It's not historical. It has no validity. So the book Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World, is structured in two halves. The first half is really the search for Jesus and his friends in the New Testament. The second half is a look at Jesus' friends today. And in the first half of the book, I, I have one chapter arguing for the historicity of the New Testament. Archaeology and history is validating everything we can test in the New Testament. I also have a chapter arguing that the crucifixion is the most radical thing in Christianity and the most radical claim in the history of humanity. And then I, I encounter Paul and Mary and Peter uh, and John, who are such vivid personalities in the New Testament. And I think because we tend to read the New Testament in individual verses and look for spiritual meaning, uh, we miss out on the fun that you can have reading it a book at a time. So I tried to read it as a professional journalist, someone who believes it's true, but nonetheless, as a professional journalist, reading it really as long form journalism, looking for narrative, meaning, sources. And I was surprised at how much fun it was, the New Testament. There's a lot of, you know, Peter's arguments, Paul's arguments with Peter and what an irascible, splendid character Paul is in every way. Mary, of course, such a force in history. And then, of course, the gripping and stark uh, account of the crucifixion itself. I have a good fun chapter on angels because it seems to me if you don't believe, there are some Christians who say they're Christians, but they don't believe in miracles or angels. And if you don't believe in miracles or angels, you've got to discount about 30% of the Bible. And if 30% of it is all lies, then I would rather be at the races. I don't want to bother with it at all. And uh, 
So I think you have to believe in angels and miracles. And angels are really very compelling. A big part of the Bible, right from the first chapter of the Old Testament, right through to the first episode of the New Testament, right through to the end of the New Testament with Michael battling uh, Satan in the book of Revelation. So angels are terrifically uh, good fun um, phenomenon. I tried to do it as a competent journalist to look at the sources, to be to do a bit of a survey of the scholarship, but to really read the New Testament itself for its own meaning. Fantastic. And um, what lessons do you think uh, your book has for Christians in Australia um, going forward in the future, Greg? Well, I do think uh, I do think the culture is in a crisis, and the culture really can't survive without Christianity. And the second half of the book then deals with contemporary Christians, some political leaders, some Christian leaders, some people who are impelled by their love of Christ to to give themselves to other people. And I think politics is downstream of culture and culture is downstream of faith. But the primary lesson really in the book, you know, such as it is, I mean, there may be no lesson in the book except don't encourage journalists to write books, you know, that <laughs> otherwise that's... Uh, but the primary effort of the book is just to establish that the new, everything we can test in the New Testament is true. So history now confirms every single thing you can test in the New Testament. Now, you can't test the miracles. You can't test the resurrection. There's a lot of supporting evidence about it, but you can't prove the resurrection. You can't prove the miracles. But you certainly can prove that Jesus was a historical character. He lived at the time that was said. He lived under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified very soon after his death, the early Jesus movement, proclaimed his resurrection and that he was the son of God. Uh, and everything in the New Testament is an accurate description of Jewish life at the time. And all of the New Testament was written within one lifetime of Jesus' death. I think we can establish all of that now by history and archaeology. Now, you don't believe in Christianity because scholarship says the New Testament is reliable. But people ought to know, given that there's so much propaganda, the Da Vinci Code and so on, against the reliability of the New Testament, people ought to know that scholarship now tells us in all historical matters it is very reliable. Then the other part of the first part of the book, the crucifixion is such a stark, vivid, brutal uh, reality in the New Testament. It's uh, I, I started with the Gospel of Luke. It's the warmest gospel. It's the, um, it's the one with the most women in it. It seems obvious to me that Luke's big source was Mary, Luke is the sort of Bob Woodward of the of the early Christian movement, and he he says that he interviewed everybody, he read all the other written accounts. Uh, it's, it seems obvious to me he got a lot of his information from Mary. Mark, the tradition is that the big source for Mark was Peter, which makes sense because there are so many episodes in Mark that are so disobliging for Peter. Peter falls asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane in Christ's agony. He denies Christ three times out of cowardice. And you can imagine Peter as the leader of the Christian movement saying to Mark, I want you to put all those things in because it shows how fallible and weak we apostles were and Jesus lifted us up. And, of course, I'm absolutely enchanted with the personality of Paul. Paul is the first urban intellectual to become a Christian. He's a master of the Jewish world from which he gets monotheism and an encounter with God. He's a master of the Greek world from which he gets deep rationality and ancient philosophy and he's a master of the Roman world from which he gets globalism. He fuses those worlds together and then subjects them to the vision of Jesus, which he 
which he has spiritually, and he turns the ancient world upside down. One of the most important figures in all of human history, Paul, but also presented in the New Testament in a wonderfully human way. Again, you couldn't make him up 200 years later. He's at times difficult, very uh, bad-tempered at times, irascible at times, discouraged, very loving, heroic, profound theological understanding of, um, of Jesus' claims. His um, statement of Christian universalism, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, but you're all one in Christ Jesus, completely revolutionizes the ancient world, which was entirely based on hierarchy. And when you read the New Testament, a book at a time, you get all the fun human bits as well. So I fell in love with the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, and it has Paul in a lot of his different moods. He starts out being very meek and mild, goes up to Jerusalem, consults Peter, James and John, make sure he's saying the right thing. He's a good boy, he's submitting to church authority. Then he has, almost a minute later, he has a terrific argument with Peter, whom he calls Cephas, the Aramaic word. And he says, look, I told Cephas to his face, you are just completely wrong about this. Then he gets very bad tempered with the people misleading the Galatians. And he says, I wish they would all go and castrate themselves. Probably some humor in that across 2000 years. I don't think he was being literal. Then, of course, these magnificent statements of theology, as I say, the statement of universalism and so on. And Paul stands as a very modern figure because he was not with Jesus when Jesus was giving his earthly mission. So he is like a modern believer. His encounter with Jesus is a spiritual encounter. It's He didn't meet Jesus. Um, uh, you know, he wasn't one of the 12 apostles. So Paul is a tremendously modern figure and his writings are absolutely gripping. And then the final thought is that um, the tone of voice of all the apostles is so different. John's gospel and John's letters, there's no other tone of voice like it in human literature. And he is just so on fire with wonder at the phenomenon of Jesus Christ, of God made man. And he was really Jesus' best friend. Uh, that that um, his tone of voice is just cries out to us over 2000 years. So one lesson is don't be intimidated by the New Testament. Go in and read it once in your life, read it a book at a time and read, if not the whole lot, read at least one of the gospels and two or three of Paul's letters and John's letters and Peter's letters. Yeah, I, I really appreciated um, a lot of what you said in the book about um, the value of the of the Bible as a work of literature, which anybody can appreciate, even even non-believers. But obviously, um, our primary, you know, the, the reason we primarily value it is because of the truth it contains and, and what it reveals about about God. Um, but yeah, wh why do you think it is that in the West we've we've put up such walls against the Bible um, that we can't, you know, so many people can't even appreciate it as a work of literature, let alone as a as a source of of yeah. faith and truth? Why why has the West developed these kind of blinders and um, this kind of it's like we've it's like we've been inoculated against Christianity. You know, modern man just doesn't doesn't want to hear anything about it. Why why has that happened? And any ideas for how how we can re-evangelize well, Western just... civilization? Well, John, uh, I think that's a really critical question. Um, the uh, why has it happened? So it it is extraordinary. So going back to Paul for a second, N.T. Wright, the great uh, biblical scholar, in his splendid biography of Paul. He argues that Paul is such a critical figure, his writing should be studied not only in any religious context, 
but in history classes, philosophy classes, literature classes, psychology classes, even politics classes, because this was a movement which completely overturned the order of the ancient world. And it did so without presenting a direct political or military challenge to the ancient world. Um, and yet today, where would you study Paul if you were not a religious person going to church and hearing the epistles at mass or whatever? Where would any student study Paul? This is a bizarre place for Western society to have got to. Um, no other society is like this. The idea that you would grow up in Indonesia and never hear about Islam or grow up in India and never hear about uh, Hinduism or grow up in Thailand and never hear about Buddhism is completely barking mad. You know, you, you couldn't imagine that. Similarly, the other societies that we're going to compete with are very, very strong with their national narrative, Islamic societies, China. Now, the Bible is a central book of Western civilization. We have to note a paradox here. Christianity is a universal religion open to every human being in the world, regardless of their cultural or ethnic background. And the vast majority of Christians in the world today are not Westerners. They're people in Latin America and Africa and Asia and so on. But it is also simply a matter of fact, of historical reality, that the Bible is the central book of Western civilization. So for us to determine that our, our children, our education system, our popular entertainment will have nothing to do with the Bible, and it has become really overtly hostile to the Bible now. So a few years ago, Russell Crowe starred in a film about Noah uh, from the Old Testament, and there was no God. There was Noah and the ark, but there was no God. I mean, they'd stripped God out of it. So why has this happened? Very complex, but, you know, my short shorthand answer is, as I say, the modernist project from about two or 300 years ago has been to try to strip God out of civilization to assert to people that it's irrational to believe in God and to assert to people that the New Testament is all baloney. And this modernist movement has been very successful. Then the ideologies, the two most evil ideologies of the 20th century were communism and Nazism. They both hated Christianity. They both explicitly hated Christianity. Nazism was extirpated. But communism has lived on both in communist regimes, but also in Marxism and all its derivative ideologies, postmodernism and, and uh, so on. And this has resulted in Western academia, especially, but also to some extent the media, coming to hate Western society. Now, a lot of bad things about Western society and a lot of bad things about Christians over the 2000 years. I think Christianity is overwhelmingly a force for good. But Christians did lots of bad things. If you want to just have a catalogue of bad things Christians did, you can have a very long catalogue. But it's unique that we have come to a position where it is the mission of a lot of our academic establishment, a lot of our media establishment, a lot of our cultural leaders to say unreservedly how evil Western society is. And Christianity, because the Bible is the central book of Western civilization. It is damned, as it were, by association. And then the final thought I'd give you is that um, in the 1960s, um, the baby boomers were kids. Uh, I'm a baby boomer. We were kids in the 1960s. And baby boomers defined themselves by their rebellion against their parents and their parents' religion. And at the same time, the sexual revolution came along, became very difficult for people to lead a normal life. We're creating a kind of neo-paganism, the... Um, the late uh, 
wonderful Jewish rabbi and teacher, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, argues this in one of his books. We're recreating the old pagan environment, which was hypersexualized, very brutal, very bad for women and girls, uh, mediated entirely by power. And um, of course, this kind of environment really hates Christianity and it really tries to wipe Christianity out. How can we get Christianity back into the culture? I do have a chapter on smuggling Christ into popular culture. And I think uh, we, there are a lot of things we need to do. We need to conceive of ourselves as a bold minority and ask for minority rights. That's not just minority rights for ourselves, but minority rights for the truth. I mean, still about half of Australians are nominally Christians. We certainly don't get half the airtime in sitcoms or drama programs or current affairs or anywhere else. Um, we need to create culture ourselves. So you might be familiar with this marvellous uh, TV series called The Chosen. They couldn't get any funding for it from Hollywood. They just crowdfunded it. And it's, it's a brilliant two-season series so far about Jesus and his first followers. And because we're becoming now not so much pro-Christian as pre-Christian, um, Christianity can present itself just as part of the, uh, you know, reality of human experience. So there are a few um, TV shows and novels and so on that I nominate in this chapter, which have a very positive uh, view of Christianity. Now, <clears throat> that's a radical loss from where we were 50 or 60 years ago, where Christianity was the, the primary explanatory paradigm for society. But we've got to recognise the new situation we're in, and we've got to wage a kind of a, a guerrilla war from the grassroots up. <clears throat> yeah, so I'll, I'll just pause one second and sort of address the, the broader audience. I've, I've got probably two or three more questions, which I'm going to ask Greg. Um, and, and uh, you know, that might take another 10 minutes or so. And after that, we're going to open up um, the possibility for questions from the audience. And the way I'd like to do that is for people to write their questions in the chat box. So if you can, um, if you can formulate a question, put it in the chat box, then I'm going to call on individuals. And if, if you would like to, to read out your question yourself, then you're welcome to do that. We just want to make sure we keep the question short and on topic. You know, we're, we're talking about, um, you know, Greg's book and the future of the Catholic Church in Australia. You know, what's, what's the future got in store? What's, what sort of actions do Christians need to take in the future? That's what we're, hoping to focus on but um if you if you'd rather just have me read your question out just note that when you write your question in the chat box um if you if you'd rather not read it out yourself that's totally fine so greg um yeah you kind of alluded to it just there in in that answer um some of these um i guess ways that christians are trying to find to re-evangelize the culture that chosen yeah one of my favorite tv shows it's absolutely fantastic and in your book you interviewed a number of other um people involved in kind of Christian evangelization efforts around the world. Um, I remember there was the Hollywood um, director that you spoke to. Um, yeah, what what are some of the ways? What are some other ways? I guess that you think Christians can try and re-evangelize the culture, and and what are the challenges that we that we're going to face there? Well, uh, yeah, the book is not an not an essay in cultural despair. So I, I'm a typical Irishman. Situation desperate, advance on all fronts, and um, the the church in the West is in ambient decline, but of course it's on fire everywhere else. Christianity is the one social force that the Chinese government can't control. Uh, it's, it's absolutely on fire in Africa. It's expanding rapidly in Africa. Uh, Christians are faithful even to death in Pakistan and parts of the Middle East where they're persecuted. 
the great dynamism in Latin America. It's only in the West that atheism, this very eccentric road we're traveling down towards becoming atheist societies uh, is happening. Um, the second half of the book deals with Christians today and a lot of them, so they are, they are building a new church. They're building a new Christian church from the ground up. Now, of course, you still got to try to give as much life as you can to the existing church structures, parishes, hospitals, schools, all the rest of it. You don't want to throw those away. But at the same time, the situation calls out for a lot of new endeavours. Not in this book, but in the last book, I had a chapter on the magnificent Campion College in Western Sydney, which is a liberal arts college dedicated to the Catholic tradition. It's produced a few hundred graduates. Well, a few hundred is a lot better than none. You know, the difference, it'd be nice if we were producing hundreds of thousands of graduates who were familiar with the great books of the Western tradition and Catholic doctrine and so on. But a few hundred is a lot better than, than none at all. Uh, in this book, I interview a brilliant young woman, Frances Cantrell, who's running something called the Co Culture Project, where she and a team go out to young people in their, mainly in their 20s, their teens and their 20s, and say, say, they say to these young people, the culture is telling you lies. This is not the way to live your life. You are a person of great human dignity and you deserve to be treated with human dignity and to treat everyone else with human dignity. So they talk about relationships. They um, preach the uh, theology of the body of John Paul II. And this is a vibrant movement. She has full-time kind of missionary activists uh, and they go to school this week at the Gold Coast. Uh, I spent some time in the last book in a Benedictine monastery, which was full of recruits, a new Benedictine monastery in Tasmania. Brilliant young men, all graduates, could do anything they wanted in life. They want to spend their whole life in contemplative prayer. Um, some of the Christian leaders I interviewed overseas, very interesting. So there's one you mentioned, Pastor Sammy Rodriguez, and a Pentecostal. Now, I'm a Catholic, obviously, and I'm very proud of my tradition, but I try to write this book from a non-denominational point of view. So every denomination that can sign up to the Apostles' Creed is, is fine by me. Sammy Rodriguez is a Pentecostal. They're a very interesting group because they're not, in their modern guise, a very old group. So they don't have the great institutions of Ang Anglicans and Catholics, the schools, the universities, the hospitals, but they're very comfortable with the contemporary world. So Sammy Rodriguez uh, runs the uh, National um, Association of uh, Hispanic Pentecostal Churches in the United States, there's 40,000 of them. And one thing that he does is he produces Hollywood movies. And these are very successful. He made one movie, cost him 10 million bucks. It made $50 million and it was nominated for an Academy Award. And these are movies with a Christian theme and very pro-Christian movies. He's made three of them. They've all been terrifically successful. Now that's not gonna change the culture on its own, but it is, it is significant. It's a contribution. And because they're so comfortable with the contemporary culture, they're good at that sort of thing. Another guy I interview um, is uh, an Ang Anglican, Nicky Gumbel in Holy Trinity, Brompton, and he's the progenitor of the Alpha Course. A lot of Catholic parishes use the Alpha Course, which is just an approach to introducing Christianity to people who haven't, haven't uh, made its acquaintance very deeply before. And millions of people have come to Christianity through these Alpha Courses. Uh, and there are other people I interview in the second half of the book too. So people are finding ways to evangelize 
And I think the denominations all have something to teach each other. They're all good at certain things, you know, and, um, uh, you know, we Catholics might learn a bit about use of social media from the Pentecostals and so on. They might learn stuff from us too. Uh, so there's no one one size fits all or anything. One thing I do think, though, is I write these books partly to encourage Christians to own their faith publicly. So I interview uh, three or four politicians. Some people didn't know they were Christians before I interviewed them. One is Scott Morrison. People knew he was a Christian. Another is Bill Hayden, who came back to the Catholic faith uh, not so long ago. Another is Peter Cosgrove, not a politician, but he talks to me about being a believing Catholic in the midst of warfare. He fought in the Vietnam War. He saw a lot of action. He and his men killed a lot of people. He had his, his mates die in battle. What is it like to believe in God, to talk to God in prayer in the midst of battle? And it's great, I think, for all these folks to own their Christianity publicly. They're not uh, oppressing anybody or, you know, forcing their beliefs on anybody, but they should be, you know, happy to, to give some witness because other Christians need the solidarity and non-Christians need the signposts to the truth. Yeah, thanks, Greg. I, I was really touched by the account uh, by your interview with um, Bill Hayden. Um, so he, you know, returned to returned to the faith of his childhood, I guess, after a whole, their whole life as an atheist. Um, I, I just I found it really moving, really beautiful. Um, so I, I, someone has just reminded me to explain where the chat box is because some people may not be so familiar with Zoom. So for most of you, I believe down the bottom of your um, Zoom window, you'll find a button that says chat. And if you click on that box, then um, you'll be able to type in a question there and uh, and I'll be able to see it. So yeah, just one last question from me, then we'll go to the audience. Um, my question is, uh, in, the, in the church, I feel like there's, there's some uh, leaders in the church, I guess, you know, bishops or, or you know, other, other leaders of, of other kinds as well. They, they seem to be pursuing a kind of strategy of trying to be likable, of trying to, when they're talking to the media or when they're talking to, you know, the general public, when they're presenting, you know, sort of a Christian stance on things, they're trying to be very likable and, and uh, friendly, portraying a nice image. and my, my perception is that that's maybe not being all that effective, that the culture's become so hostile to Christianity that that's, um, that's maybe not going to make much of an impact. And there's, I've seen a few other leaders in various parts of the world who you, you say, you know, a bit more um, firebrands, you know, they're, they're probably confronting the culture in a more aggressive way and, you know, saying to the culture, I guess saying to the culture, basically, you're wrong and Christianity's right. Hopefully they're doing it in a, you know, in a, in a better way than that, in a, in a more compelling way. But, but the, I guess their stance is, is more to attack the culture because the culture's gone bad as opposed to, you know, try to pat the culture on the head and say, um, you know, nice culture, you're, you're just fine the way you are. Uh, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, on uh, you know, the, those different approaches and whether you think one's better than the other at this point in time. Well, John, that's a really interesting question. and. Um... I suspect that, like you, I, I naturally favour the pugilistic approach. I mean, we Irishmen like a fight. You know, <laughs> why else would you go into journalism except to spend a lifetime brawling? You know, 
the great G.K. Chesterton said he wanted to be the forgotten victor of a thousand forgotten battles. You know, he didn't long for immortality, just wanted to win the fight. But uh, maybe I've mellowed a little bit as I've got older. I do think, though, we should help Christian leaders and um, our problems are not our leaders and there's no point really, and I'm not suggesting you're doing this remotely, there's no point really lamenting our leaders' weaknesses or wishing that they were someone else. I mean, like a lot of Catholics, especially of my generation, I thought John Paul II was absolutely electric, and I think he is the, the greatest pope of the last several hundred years. And he, he did change the direction of culture. You know, the decline in vocations stopped under him, the decline in church attendance stopped under him. Uh, but how often do you get a John Paul II? You, you can't look at anybody else and say, why aren't you John Paul II? It's not fair. You know, it, it's just not fair. And um, everybody has their different style. Now, I do think there's a very profound point, which I think you're making, but if, if you're not anyway, let me make it. The culture is trying to intimidate us and trying to bluff us out of our beliefs and tell us that our beliefs are embarrassing and irrational. So you want to answer that intellectually. That's what I'm trying to do in these books. You also want to answer it kind of, if you like, politically or personally or, you know, don't be scared of the culture. Don't be scared of it. Absolutely don't be scared of it. And we in this country and in the West generally, we are not facing persecution. The culture is hostile to us, but we are not facing persecution. I've got two chapters about uh, Chinese Christians. Now, we live a life of gilded luxury compared to Chinese Christians. So if we think it's a bit rough for us, we just want to look at Christians who are really having it rough. You know, we're not like the Christians in Iraq where Islamic State came and wrote N on their houses, meaning Nazarene, meaning that the next day the guys would come around and kill the men and, and enslave the women. None of that's happening to us. So we've got no excuse for not owning our faith publicly and, um, and making our points. However, I do think it's good to be kind rather than to be pugilistic, although my instinct is to be pugilistic. But I think even though you're being kind, you still must be truthful. So I've got no objection to people being as kind as they like, but still asserting the truth boldly, still say clearly. You can, be, you can have a kumbaya manner, but still say very tough things. And in a way, to take a non-religious example of this, it's quite instructive just to Google the old uh, um, footage of Ronald Reagan. Just Google Ronald Reagan's humour. And you see, he, he actually he takes the Democrats apart and he, he makes their policies seem foolish, but he does it with such good humour. And whenever there's an attack on him, he says, well, you know, you don't know the half of it. It's much worse than that. Somebody says to him... Uh, um, do you think it's unfair that people are playing your old movies? Uh, you're getting extra coverage, which other candidates can't get. And he said, yeah, my opponents are so ruthless. They'll stop at nothing to discredit me. They're even playing my old movies. You know, he's just so good humoured about everything. Every attack, it just gently brushes off him. Now, not everybody can be Ronald Reagan. Not everybody can be John Paul II. Not everybody can be Ronald Reagan. The final point I'd make about our leaders, I've interviewed a lot of Christian leaders, and I think they're all... All, all the ones I've interviewed, they're very good people. They're very aware now of their circumstances. I think there was a period where there was a, 
a contradiction between what the leaders thought and what the reality was. So even 60 years ago, Christianity had the sort of notionally dominant position in culture. And you can see all the Academy Award-winning movies were pro-Christian, all the best-selling books were pro-Christian. I grew up in Sydney. If the Cardinal Gilroy or, or Dr. Lone, the Anglican Archbishop, or the head of the Salvation Army, if they made a statement, that was a big deal. It was like the Prime Minister making a statement. And religious leaders grew up thinking that they were shepherding, guiding that consensus. And all of a sudden, the culture had changed. And it took them a while before they realised that they were now representing a minority and they had to go out and get attention. Now, I still think they could take more professional advice about how to do it. You know, there are ways to do it. It's not really rocket science. But nonetheless, I think they're all aware now of the circumstances they're in. They're applying their minds to it as best they can. They all have their different styles. Sometimes they get things right. Sometimes they get things wrong. I, I don't want to engage in any controversy at all. And I certainly don't want to verbal him or anything. But um, I thought in Melbourne, when Archbishop Commonsoli a year or two ago said he thought George Pell was innocent. And then on an interview on John Payne's radio program, he said, if necessary, he would go to jail rather than break the law on the seal of the confessional. I thought, wow, those are two moments where an archbishop has really looked the culture in the eye and said, I think you're wrong. And he said it as nicely as he could, but I thought that took a bit of guts. I don't really want to encourage anyone to comment tonight on Archbishop Comensoli. I just offer that to you as an example. So there are good, you know, there are good things our leaders are doing, uh, even if we think they could be doing even better. Really well said, Greg. Thank you. Um, so I've got plenty of questions from uh, the audience here. Um, I, I don't know if I, this is the first time I've done this, so I don't know if this is going to work, but Mari Barg, would you like to unmute yourself and, answer, and ask your question of Greg? Mari Barg. Are you there, Murray? Maybe I'll read it out for you. Um, Murray's interested. I, I hope this, I hope this uh, makes sense to you, Greg. Interested in your thoughts on how you define recontextualization in a post-Christian society. Does that term um, mean anything to you, recontextualization? Well, I guess it means what context are we operating in or what context do we put Christianity in? So, you know, the context 60 years ago was a society in which most people gave at least lip service to Christianity. The context now is one in which most people don't and in which um, uh, Christianity is in ambient decline. Uh, and um, in many ways, that's a tremendous loss, but in other ways, it does enable us. Uh, it's always more fun to be a revolutionary than to be a uh, status quo sort of person. Uh, I'm very prone to military metaphors. You know, a lot of Christians don't like it at all, but you can't please everyone, especially with your metaphors. But it's more fun in a way to be using your gunpowder to blow things up, in a sense, than to um, than to be trying to defend the towns and, and, and the bridges. Um, I think uh, you can preach the Christian message. So I tried to write these two books also very much from first principles. You know, I remember reading a wonderful book by George Weigel a few years ago, and he said, you know, if all the property was taken from the church and all of our institutions were shut and the Archbishop of Washington, D.C. was sitting in Lafayette Park and as people walked by, he got up and said to them, hey, 
brother, do you know that Jesus Christ is your saviour? He came to save your soul. The archbishop would be doing his job. And uh, we can kind of do our job very directly now. And I think um, we just take um, take our position on the basis of the truth of, um, of the Christian faith. Fantastic. Uh, I've got a question from Matt. Do you want to read your question out, Matt? Sure. Uh, thanks, Greg, for um, speaking to us this evening. Um, I just had a question. Um, I was going to say, in the West, it seems we have we live in a very busy, noisy, and in control existence, likely impacting our interest and attention span on peripheral matters such as our relationship with God. How might we cut through and evangelize in an age when people are likely passively but not actively searching for God? So, look, that's a really good question. Was it Matthew? Was that the person who asked the question? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Matthew, Matthew, that's a really, really good question. And uh, it's a matter which has exercised my mind a lot. And I hate to tell you I don't have any clear uh, conclusion on it. It's one of the few questions in the physical universe on which I don't have a dogmatic opinion. Um, but I know just a couple of reflections. Um Church is terribly important. And one of the saddest things of COVID is that we can't go to church. And I'm not entering the debate here about lockdown regulations, whether they were good or bad or anything. But I do think jurisdictions all around Australia didn't give sufficient value to church. So an Anglican friend, oddly enough, in Sydney was telling me there was a time when you he couldn't have one singer in church, but he could go to a musical production in the theatre in Sydney. And everybody was singing on the stage and everybody was sitting adjacent to each other in the theatre. So I don't understand why churches were subject to more restrictive lockdowns. And, of course, it's partly in church that we find this um, reflective attitude of reverence. Catholic worship has always had a great uh, emphasis on reverence, whereas, say, my good friends, the Pentecostals, their worship is very upbeat and noisy and, and all of that. There are some Catholics who practice that style. I think uh, communion and liberation are a bit more that style. But Catholic um, practices always emphasised silence with the Lord, reverence, uh, prayerfulness. And you cannot live an integrated human life unless you have an element of that, even quite apart from spiritual matters. Was it Socrates or someone else who said the, the unreflective life is not worth living? let's overstating things a bit, but you, I mean, I think it's a terrible tragedy that kids are, are uh, pushed away from reading whole books, that the educational institutions deliver more and more of their material online in bite-sized uh, nuggets so that kids don't have their attention spans challenged. You know, reading a 350, 450-page book, that's a bit of a challenge. You, you, you really have to to keep at it, you have to devote 10 or 12 or 14 hours of your life. And um, spiritual meditation is a bit like uh, a bit like that. Um, the Benedictines, a lot of their life is a, the Benedictine contemplative monks. A lot of their life is chanting prayer, but a lot of their life is a reading life. Uh, I think you can sell to modern people the idea that they need periods of quiet as well as periods of frenetic activity. But I tell you what. Here I am, a man in my mid-60s, and I am as addicted to that flaming telephone as if I were a teenager. And I know it's wretched, and yet 
I find it hard to put it down. So increasingly now, I switch the thing off and leave it aside for two or three hours to do some solid work because you're always tempted to go back and look at it. And that's that kind of is somehow or other, that's the machine against God or something. I, I don't know. So that's a confused response, but there it is. Thank you. It's a real challenge, the old, uh, the old phone, isn't it? Um, got an interesting question here from Tim and Pete, which a couple of other people have asked similar questions. Um, Tim and Pete, do you want to ask your question? Hi. Uh, thanks very much, Greg. Yes, um, yeah, basically um, been involved with um, trying to work out missions uh, going forward in Victoria, the, the new model of, of sort of creating missions through combining parishes, et cetera. And it's just a lot of the discussion that I've had with people is revolved around the next generation. You know, that this is a bit distinct lack of um, young people coming up through the churches and uh, that gets blamed quite frequently on, on just poor catechesis or nothing that inspires them in the schools. And I'm, I'm just at a loss of how do, you, how do you alter that? How do you turn that around? So that is the hardest question of all, and I have some ideas on it, but I don't pretend to have the answers. Every religious tradition in the affluent West has a great deal of trouble transmitting belief to the next generation. And this is because we live, in my opinion, this is partly because we live in this very uh, destructive and ugly neo-pagan culture, which is not neutral. A culture can never be neutral. And this culture is certainly not neutral. Every day, this culture reinforces um, the message that Christianity is untrue, there is no God, and the only decent spiritual response is that of a um, of a kind of particularly anodyne um, secular counsellor. Uh, I'm okay, you're okay, you and your feelings, how do you feel? How does that make you feel? That's the only question that counts. And you see this reinforced over and over and over again in every aspect of popular culture. Uh, so my wife and I are watching a TV series at the moment, which is full of recreational drug use in people in their 60s, 70s and 80s. Very well-made series, very entertaining. But so, okay, we, we've made a life choice. We're not recreational drug users. You know, we don't smoke marijuana or anything like that. But this, this TV series has a normative message that this is a good way to behave. This is a life-affirming way to behave. Nothing could be more dishonest because we know if people are smoking drugs right through their middle ages and so on, it's going to warp their brains and they're going to end up very, very unhealthy, unhappy, psychotic, dangerous, miserable people. But the culture sends out all these normative messages. Um, the only, uh, we watched another series recently, the only Christian in it, of course, turned out to be a wife beater. You know, so there was an overtly Christian person in the series. He had um, Christian uh, images on his walls and so on. And naturally, he turned out to be a shocking domestic abuse guy. Now, I'm not saying no Christians have been white feeders. Of course they have. But, but there's a kind of relentlessness about the way the culture seduces young people. And then even things that are not overtly religious, just the idea that you have to be promiscuous at a very young age or you're not giving yourself self-expression 
you have to defy the authority of your parents to establish your independence and so on. The culture is full of these really toxic messages. I don't, so a lot of different Christian responses to this. One is from Rod Dreyer, the Benedict Option. His, his view is that we should pull back from engagement with the culture and create what you might call Christian safe spaces. There's something in that. Just going to church for an hour a week is a safe space. Um, having a Bible study group is a safe space. Uh, one thing is, I think we should all enjoy our religion. And so kids should grow up thinking that religion is enjoyable. It puts demands on them, but it's also enjoyable. I mean, one of the great things about feast days when I was a kid was that there was always a lot of food and drink associated with it. You know what they say about Catholics. When we feast, we feast. And when we fast, we cheat. You know, and there's a lot of good food and drink in all Christian and all through the Bible, of course. But uh, I do interview some younger people in this book who are doing their own thing. Uh, Campion College, as I say, has been very successful, and so have some other non-Catholic Bible colleges uh, in Australia. And then there is a constituency inside the human heart for truth. But um, Pastor Sammy Rodriguez, who makes these Hollywood movies, they're having the same uh, challenge in Pentecostal uh, churches as we're having in Catholic churches. I certainly do think we ought to do more with our schools. So the final reflection I'll offer you is this. There's a great deal of sociological evidence that Christians of all different denominations know almost nothing about the formal teachings of their particular denomination. So you could probably go into a Catholic school and ask about purgatory or the four last things, you know, death, judgment, heaven, hell. Uh, and, you know, you'd, you'd get blank stares or something. Well, how, how is it? So one challenge I made in my last book is that every Catholic school, every Christian school, should devote one year of religious education classes, which I think every Christian school of any denomination should have a religious education class every single day. And they should devote one year of that to the Apostles' Creed. Just go through so that uh, that won't in, uh, guarantee that people are going to be religious. But it means later on in life, if they want to return to the religion, they've got some knowledge of what it actually is. Um, the... The evidence is that people under 50 have very little knowledge right across the spectrum, even active churchgoers, of what the actual beliefs of their, of their denomination are. So part of the crisis of belief is a crisis of knowledge. That's not everything, but that's one thing. But I think this is a huge, big question on which, you know, I would like you good folks to come up with the answers. It's very, uh, it's very tough to know what to do, isn't it? Um, I have four kids myself and uh, I spend a lot of time lying in bed at night trying to figure out how do I how do I raise them as Catholics and pass the faith on in this culture um, there's been one or two questions along these lines so I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and um, and it's a question I had as well that I, so I might jump in here I, I don't know if you're familiar with a book by Patrick Deneen called Why Liberalism Failed you're familiar with that with that book yeah yeah yeah, yeah where he tries to make the case that, you know, the, the kind of the game that we're playing politically, philosophically, culturally in the West is kind of rigged. It, you know, we were told, we were told, um, you know, that it's a neutral playing field, that everybody's viewpoints are, you know, equally valued. But, you know, experiences has taught us that clearly that's not the case, that, you know, the dice are loaded. Um, you know, every time there's a political issue where Christians are trying to fight, you know, for the, the pro-life position or something like that, we always lose every time. It's it's inevitable um, kind of continuous defeat. 
I'm interested in your on your views on that problem. Um, what can we do? Is is liberal democracy? Is there a way to make it Christian, or is or do we need to look at some some other you know I don't know model of of, of politics? So I uh, hold the view that modern liberalism is a child of Christianity. That uh, so there's a wonderful book uh, by Larry Siddentop called Embedding the Individual: The Birth of Western Liberalism. And he argues really that everything in modern liberalism that we like, universal human rights, equality between men and women, marriage as an institution of mutual love, um, concern for children, hospitals, uh, welfare, uh, the concern for the poor, everything about liberalism that we like, racial equality, everything was thoroughly thought through by the latter part of the Middle Ages within what was really Catholic debates about the good life. Now, of course, lots of Catholics did lots of bad things, no doubt about that. But modern liberalism was not a rejection of Christianity. It was a fulfillment of Christianity. What I think happens is that when you cut off modern liberalism from its Christian roots, it goes mad. And it tries to inject into politics the transcendent value which ought to reside in religion. And it becomes increasingly dogmatic and illiberal and infuses every political position with an absolutist and transcendent, uh, you know, phony value, in, in my opinion. Um, I don't think, though, we should despair of liberal democracy. We have to convert the culture back. And you can't convert the culture in one big fell swoop. So very interesting woman I interviewed, Jenny George, brilliant, brilliant woman in this new book, Christians. An Anglican woman runs a sort of a, a formally charitable institution providing mental health services. And I ask her about the culture and so on, and she has interesting things to say about it, but she says, but you know, I don't worry too much about the culture because conversion is an individual matter. You have to win the kingdom of God soul by soul. And, you know, the first Christians didn't sort of gain control of the um, Roman Empire's, you know, communications network and daily newspapers. They went out and converted people person by person in an environment which was at least as hostile as the environment we face today. Now, there are all kinds of intellectual and personal and psychological tricks which modern media does, especially social media. Social media is a terrible plague. We've got to fill it with good stuff and we've got to guard our kids against being, you know, seduced by it and corrupted by it. I'm Give thanks to God that it wasn't around when I was a kid. I'm so so glad to have got through without, uh, and even indeed my sons are old enough that it wasn't a big deal for them, but it's going to be a big deal for my grandkids. And uh, I don't think you give up on liberal democracy. You have to, and it's also all the battles that we've lost, Deneen's right, but it's much better to fight and lose than not to fight and lose. I was talking to a, a great soldier the other day about, um, how quickly the Afghan forces surrendered and the, about the same speed with which the French forces surrendered in World War II. The Polish forces, on the other hand, fought and fought and fought to the last man. And I said to him, I suppose it's hard when you know the battle's lost to fight and die. And he said, no, every battle after the fall of France for the next period of time was lost by the Allies, but it was absolutely critical to impose a cost on the Nazis and to keep the spirit of resolve amongst the allies. He said, you get to a point as a soldier 
where your job is just to die. And uh, this was very stark, but this is a soldier who's seen real action and he'd internalised this. I hadn't thought of it at all. So this is a very extreme metaphor that I'm offering. But it's much better for the church to fight these battles with all the limitations, with the certitude of defeat, because in fighting the battle, it offers an alternative uh, narrative. It defends the truth. It sets out a stake for the truth, and it gives a point for the culture to come back to when the culture recovers its senses. And then we've got to go out and convert people one by one and um, bring the culture back to sanity. You know, there, and my final reflection is, there have been very bad times in the past where it's looked as though Christianity was finished. Uh, Mickey Gumbel refers, says to me in this book that in 1750 at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, there were 16 people attended Easter services. One six, 16 people. And there were 10,000 sex workers walking the streets of London. And you would have said Christianity was finished. But then along came the Wesleys and the great revival of uh, Christian sentiment throughout Britain. Archbishop Fisher in Sydney has said to me, there were times in the 19th century when the practice rate amongst Catholics in Australia was lower than it is now, the mass going rate and so on. But the Catholic schools, the Catholic religious orders, they dragged people back to the truth. And then really up until the late 1950s or the early 1960s, the West and certainly Australia were predominantly Christian uh, societies. You never win these battles forever, but you never lose them forever either. Uh, and I don't think, so liberal democracy has the essential ingredient of freedom. And I don't think we can set ourselves up as enemies of freedom. Of course, freedom has its limits. You're not free to murder people. You're not free to set fire. You're not free to uh, incite uh, hatred or violence. There are limits to freedom. But I don't think I don't think the church can ever, uh, or we as individual Christians can ever take a position where, where we're, we've lost the battle, so we we want uh, we want the rules amended so that you don't have a free society anymore. We have to use freedom more creatively and more energetically than we have in the past. Great, thanks so much uh, for your time tonight. I believe you, you need to head off. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, if you had one more question, we could do that, but otherwise... Okay. Well, yeah, there's, there's a heap more questions, so if, if that's okay, I'll, I'll call on um, Michael Christie. Um, if you could unmute yourself, perhaps I need to unmute you. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, oh day. How are you? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Greg. I've, I've got your book at home. I haven't got got uh, to read it yet but anyway I'll, I'll get there um uh, my question this evening was i was just interested in um um i seem to find that you know speaking to non-catholics and that sort of stuff is is usually easier than speaking to the nominally catholic who everything's up for the discussion and uh they seem to just you know, got new ideas about everything, and you know, and uh, it just seems to be, uh, it just seemed to be sort of white anting, white anting the church. And I was just interested in, uh, in in your approach to um, to that because I just see, I just think the the, the nominally Catholic are doing more damage than 
than uh, you know some of the other religions or non-religions and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, uh, Mike, Michael, was it? Is it yes, Michael? Yeah, Michael. So, Michael, thanks for that question. And there's a lot to it. I think there's a lot in what you say. Um, somebody said to me uh, in an interview the other day, he said, you're, you're kind to all Christians, he said, except liberal Christians. You're not very kind to them. And I didn't know exactly how to respond. But later on, I was thinking, well, I did say I agree with all Christians who can assert the Apostles' Creed. But... There is a brand of liberal Christianity, and I'm not attacking any individual here. I'm just talking in, in sort of intellectual categories, which doesn't believe in the bodily resurrection, doesn't believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, doesn't believe in um, heaven and hell, doesn't believe in the miracles. And uh, the nominal Christians, so this is a point Rod Dreyer makes, um, although I, I don't embrace Rod Dreyer's general proposition that we should retreat from the culture. I certainly think we should create safe spaces for us. But he makes the point that if you go to a bad Christian school or a bad Catholic school, not only do you not get proper formation, but you get a kind of an injection which inoculates you against Christianity uh, because you've, you've had a bad version of it and you think, therefore, been there, done that, and it's all rubbish and it's all um, passe and the only teacher I liked told me it was all rubbish and nothing in the Gospels is true and Peter is not the rock upon which the whole church is founded and therefore he has some special authority. What he binds on earth is bound in heaven and what he loses in earth is loosed in heaven. No, no, that's all baloney. I, I know this, this stuff. Now, I don't think that's right. I think Catholic and Christian schools provide the germs of faith for people who attend them. But I can see what he was getting at. and. Um, so I do deal a bit in the book with that Christian movement, which is against God, which, uh, you know, um, was associated with Shelby Spong and others, which tried to take the God out of the Gospels and the God out of uh, out of the Bible altogether. Um, the God is dead movement within Christianity. Generally speaking, this brand of Christianity cannot reproduce itself. It can only exist if it has salaried positions, either paid for by the government or by the church. Because you can't win anyone to that creed. You can't go out to a young person and say, I want to inspire you with a message which is complete baloney. I want to tell you that this story is superstition and horseradish and none of it actually happened and you should live your life by it. That's just, if that's yeah. what you're selling, I'd rather be at the races. Just forget it. Mm -hmm. And I think I tried to write my two books from first principles and um almost a Protestant lesson we let we Catholics can take is if we're looking for authority, you can often just go straight to the straight to the New Testament. Of course, there are other sources of authority for Catholics. Absolutely. I completely accept the church authority, the importance of tradition, uh, you know, papal encyclicals, all the rest of it. But very often it's just a question of, um, of going to the gospel itself. I was at a writer's festival and a fellow uh, participant on the panel said, it's good what Christians do, but nowhere did Jesus say, you have to believe anything. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. He, he does say, who do you say that I am, uh, Peter? And Peter says, you are the, the son of God, the Messiah, the, the, the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my, my father in heaven. And he does say in John, he who comes to the, to the father comes through the son. And Paul says 
if Christ is not risen, our faith is in vain. Seems to me Jesus and his first followers had a lot of things that you had to believe in if you wanted to be a Christian. And you don't actually need a very deep knowledge of Christianity to assert that. You just need a little elementary familiarity with the, um, uh, you know, with the New Testament itself. And the New Testament is that not that long. You know, you're not going to die of old age reading the books of the New Testament or anything. And there's only 80 or 90 pages of Paul all up. And uh, so, look, that's, that doesn't answer your whole problem, but I do think that um, that you're onto something. That that it's often the sort of the the nominal or lukewarm, uh, which who are always preaching that the the essence of Christianity is not true. God bless them; they're God's creatures too, and you wish them well, and you hope that they'll find their way back to a more to a more substantial. But I mean, I think we should be nice to them, even as we gently encourage them into. Uh, into a fuller appreciation of the truth. So, John, I will sort of shortly sign off, but thank you so much for organising tonight, and I, I hope everyone's enjoyed it, and thank you very much indeed. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Um, I really appreciated reading your book. Uh, it was just chock-a-block full of um, references to all these great works of literature and authors that the whole, the whole time I'm reading, I'm like, oh, He's read that. He's read that. He's read all these books that I want to read. It was, it was really impressive, um, and it was really a great reintroduction to the to the Christian faith, reintrodu- reintroducing it to Jesus, um, why belief is reasonable, and so much encouragement there uh, about all the great movements that are growing in the church around the world and in, and in the West, and uh, you know great inspiration in in meeting some of these prominent figures who are living their Christian lives publicly and forthrightly and boldly. Um, so I highly recommend Greg's book to everyone. Uh, have a look at it, Christians, the Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. And Greg, I also want to thank you for tonight. Um, you know, your humour and your your colourful, um, you know, use of the language and, you know, the fight, the, the fight that you bring to, uh, to your faith and the encouragement and positivity. I find it really encouraging and really inspiring. So... Um, thank you from me, and I'm sure everyone else is, is really grateful too. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much, John. Good night to everyone, and good luck to everyone, and thanks so much indeed. Good night. See you, Greg. So, um, yeah, that brings an end to the formal part of the of the event tonight. Um, the couple of things I'll say before, uh, if, you know, people might be heading off in a moment, um, if you would like to know about future events that we that we run like this, we plan to run um, several each year. Uh, make sure you register for the event on Eventbrite. Okay, our main page at the moment, we'll probably have a different one later on, but right now the main page is on the Eventbrite website. I'll put the link in the chat box. All you got to do is click on that link and it will take you to our webpage where you can reg- it, it'll register you for tonight's event. Um, you know, which has obviously already happened, but that'll mean that you'll be on our email list. And next time we run another event, you'll get um, you'll get a message about that too. Um, I'm really sorry to all, there were several people who had a question and didn't get to ask it. I'm sorry, um, not everyone got to ask their question. Um, yeah, just unfortunately, we didn't have enough time to, to squeeze them all in. Um, 